Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Thanks for listening to the show. To support the podcast and letter, get lots of member-only features and follow Mike and Karina behind the scenes, go to aletterfromireland.com forward slash plus. That's aletterfromireland.com forward slash plus. Now, let's get on with the show. Mike and Karina here with you again. And today we're going to take you on our five favourite stops in a tour around Dublin. You know, Karina, we compile this over a period of a couple of visits and I know everybody's going to have their ideas of their favourite stops, but we've decided to choose just five. And I suppose this list could have been 10, it could have been 20 really, but our top five for now. And I think everybody's going to really enjoy and a bit of music along the way to keep us company. Now, Karina and everybody else, are we ready to go on the rocky road to Dublin? In the merry month of June, from me home I started, left the girls at June, nearly broken hearted, salute to father dear, kiss me darling mother, drank a pint of beer, me grief and tears to smother, then off to reap the corn, leave where I was born, cut to stout black thorn to banish ghosts and goblins, a brand new pair of brogues, rattling o'er the bogs, frightening all the dogs, on the rocky road to Dublin, one, two, three, four, five, hut the hair and turn her down the rocky road, all the way to Dublin, whack full only in Mullingar that night I rested limbs so weary Started by daylight, me spirits sprite And ere he took a drop of the pure Keep me heart from sinking, that's the paddy's cure Whenever he's on for drinking Just see the lassie smile, laughing all the while At me curious style, twas set your heart to bubbling And asked if I was hard, wages I required Till I was nearly tired of the rocky road To double it, one, two, three, four, five Hut the hair and turn her down the rocky road All the way to double and whack full lolly in Dublin next arrived I thought it such a pity to be so soon deprived A view of that fine city Well then I took a stroll All among the quality bundle it was stole All in a neat locality Something crossed me mind When I looked behind the bundle Could I find upon me sick A wobbling inquiring for the rogue Said me cut it broke Wasn't much in vogue On the rocky road to Dublin One, two, three, four, five Hut the hair and turn her down the rocky road All the way to Dublin Just as the ship was sailing, the captain at me roared Said the door of Maddy when I jumped aboard A cabin found for Paddy Down among the pace, played some bonny rakes Danced some hearty jigs, the water round me bubbling When a hobby head, wish myself was dead Or better far instead On the rocky road to Dublin, one, two, three, four, five Hurt the hair and turn her down the rocky road All the way to Dublin, whack full of Temper I was losing, poor old Aaron's Isle Baby 
We're on the rocky road to Dublin there, courtesy of the High Kings. Well, that was a rousing start, Mike. And how about a little bit of Irish today? And let's take the Irish word for Dublin. So it's Balia or Clea which is the town of the Ford of the Hurdles. So that's where we cross the river and the hurdles are to keep you from getting muddy feet at low tide. So that's a lovely name, but an older name still for Dublin is Dove Ling. And Dove, you might know, is the word for black. Dove Ling, a black pool. And that was where the river uh, puddle uh, joined the River Liffey and caused a very dark pool at high tide. So isn't that a lovely name for Dublin? Dove Ling and the more modern one, Balia or Clea. And of course, Dove Ling gave us the actual anglicised version of Dublin. So there we are. Now, you can see a map, folks, below there, just below where you're listening. And we have five stops marked out. Now, there could have been 20 stops here, no problem at all, because, you know, there's just so much history, historical sites, and some of them are just so well laid out and they really bring you back into the time. So what we decided to do was choose, I suppose, Karina, the top five experiential kind of places where Absolutely. you can put your hands and listen to people and so on. So we're going to start off with number one, which is there in the centre of the actual city there in Trinity College. And it's the Book of Kells exhibition. Then we're going to move further a little bit east over to the Guinness Storehouse, which is the site of the original Guinness Brewery. A little bit further east, again, in number three, we find Kilmainham Jail. For number four, we're returning back into the centre and going a little bit north of the city centre and across the River Liffey to 14 Henrietta Street, which is a tenement museum. And we're going to finish our tour today right up there in Glasnevin Cemetery, stop number five. Back so to number one, Karina, and we're going to drop here into Trinity College in the Book of Kells. And I remember the day we went in there and uh, Amory Diffley, the person who you'll be speaking to in just a few moments, she's so kind to actually cordon off the book itself, the exhibition. Oh, we were like famous people that oh day, Mike. Oh my God, weren't we standing there with so many people wondering who these people were and we were just a tiny bit embarrassed. But what a book, it's just so well done in the exhibition. So then just after that, uh, you nipped into the long room with Amory and she had this to say to you. Well, I'm chatting here with Anne-Marie Diffley in the Long Library in Trinity in Dublin in Ireland. And Anne-Marie is responsible for the tourists that come here to the library. One of her jobs and one of many jobs. And we've had a wonderful tour so far, but I'd like just for you guys, I'm going to ask Anne-Marie a few questions. And Anne-Marie, first off, maybe you can tell me how old is the very special book that we've all visited here, the Book of Kells? Well, the Book of Kells was over 1,200 years old. So it dates from the beginning of the 9th century. It's a copy of the Four Gospels. It's written in Latin. And the fame of the book, it comes from the colour. It, it comes from the, um, the artwork. The artwork is more beautiful, more sophisticated than anything else to survive in manuscript form from this period. So we believe it was written on the island of Iona by Irish monks, followers of St. Colb Kill. 
because of the Viking invasions to that part of Scotland, the monks left with the book, came to Ireland, and they settled at their sister monastery in Cowes County Mead. And that is why we call it the Book of Cows after its last resting place. Now, it stayed in Cows uh, until the 17th century. And because of the Cromwellian invasions to Ireland, the book was brought to Dublin for safekeeping. And eventually, in 1661, the Book of Cows was handed to Trinity College. It's remained ever since. So here it rests now. So here it rests. The and many, many people have to visit the book. Yeah. How, how many actually do come every year to visit the book, well, Anne-Marie? Well, last year, just under 800,000 visitors came to see uh, the Book of Kells. So we're one of Ireland's top tourist attractions, and about over 30% of our visitors are from North America. But in fact, the 90% of our visitors are overseas visitors. So they've heard about the Book of Cows and they want to come and see us. Of course. It's absolutely fantastic. And I could be here all day with you, Anne-Marie. You could. Thank you very much for talking to us and for showing us around. OK, Karina. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. We were very thankful to Anne-Marie for greeting us, meeting us and showing us that wonderful illuminated manus. And then being in the long library there was like uh, just an experience in itself, well worth going. So then we headed off out to the Guinness Brewery and out to the Guinness Storehouse. And we were standing there at St. James Gate. On our visit to our capital city here in Dublin, was to St. James's Gate, which is the headquarters of Guinness here in Ireland. And we've just travelled through the whole flagship shop and brewery to the top floor where we experienced the beautiful taste of Guinness. Um, Mike was telling me actually that he remembers when he was a child many moons ago, uh, smelling the hops here along the streets when he lived in Dublin. Uh, there's no longer the smell of hops, but the brew is still there and as good as ever for those that travel and get to the top floor. Also, there was a wonderful view of the city. Today is a little overcast, but it was really, really nice to see Dublin, a bird's eye view of Dublin, before we dive into the other areas that we're going to visit during the week. And there we have the actual uh, the Guinness storehouse. I, I got to admit, it was some experience. It must be like the number one uh, destination for so many tourists coming into Ireland, Karina. And uh, I remember standing up there in the kind of big glass kind of uh, piece at the top of the Guinness storehouse and thinking... Well, you know, maybe I could enjoy this just as much or even more in a little pub in the west of Ireland rather than being up here. But it was an experience of itself. Yes, you could have it the way the dubs have it, Mike. They, that's a, what those Dublin people call themselves, the dubs. They have their pint of Guinness in a local little watering hole down in the city. And there are lots of those to explore for people as well. But, you know, the view from the top there out over Dublin as you're having your pint at the Guinness Storehouse, that's a unique situation as well. Actually, Karina, I just reminded myself there that when I was a young fellow, I used to actually swim in the, I think it was the Grand Canal at the time, the 12th Lock. And uh, just up a little bit was the actual pool as part of the feeder pool for the for the canal that Guinness actually used to get its pure water for the Guinness. So swimming in Guinness from an early age. Wow. I remember my first Guinness, Mike. It was at the Jazz Festival here in Cork. I was oh, a very wow. young one. Must I, have been free, was it? I was, <laughs> no, no. I was 20 and the thing to do was to drink Guinness. So I had a small glass of Guinness. I couldn't drink it at all, really. And I remember somebody added some black currant to it. And that was my first taste of oh, Guinness. Well and you've been having a pint every day since. No, I've, I've never fell for Guinness now, I must <laughs> say. But all in all, I can appreciate that there's a, there's a certain taste here to the Guinness in Ireland that's unique. So as we left uh, the Guinness storehouse, we headed off to stop number three on your map below, which is Kilmainham Jail. Now, 
you know, Kilmain of Jail, we have lots of jails in Ireland, as you might imagine, historical jails primarily, thankfully. But uh, Kilmain uh, assumed in a matter of uh, notoriety down through the years. And it's become a very interesting closed jail with fantastic tours at this point in time. So it would have been built more or less in the early Victorian times as the idea of a new model prison where, you know, having a more humane approach to the inmates was considered the up and coming thing. So it was along those lines. And I guess the main reason why we hear about Kilmainham Jail at all nowadays is that so many revolutionaries were actually held down there through the years. And especially the actual folks who signed the Proclamation of Independence back in 1916, many of them were held there before they were executed. And can you remember the tour there on the day we went? I, I remember the tour guide especially because he really led us through the whole place and gave us a real sense of story and time of Dublin. And I suppose I felt as well as I sat in one of those little cells, how claustrophobic it was, how enclosed it was. And I, I remember him telling us as well about people were there for little petty crimes and then right up as far as murder and, you know, but they, and there were young children held there as well. So it, it wasn't wonderful by any means. And I'm sure when it was closed in 1924, um, it was a good riddance, really, in, in certain ways. And I suppose another thing that caught my attention as well, that convicts, Mike, were held there for quite a while before they were transported to Australia and so on. So that might be of interest to some of our listeners here. And the, do you remember as well, at the very end of the tour, we were taken out. Into oh, that was the, amazing. The yards there were, and you could actually stand in the place where so many people were executed. Um, and there were there were tears in people's eyes, Mike, at that yeah. point. And I, I must say I had goosebumps too. Ma a fantastic tour guides along the way. And one of the stops along the way, I especially remember, Karina, I know we were, it was brought up in the tour um, very emotionally as well, it was a little chapel inside. And it was inside that chapel that one of the signatories uh, who was actually executed there, uh, a man by the name of Thomas Plunkett, married his childhood sweetheart, Grace Gifford. So the two of them were married and it was just very shortly afterwards that he was executed. So here we have a beautiful song uh, with Jim McCann that captures that particular moment, written in the 70s, I do believe, and it's a song called Grace. As we gather in the chapel here in old Kilmainham Jail I think about these past few weeks Oh, will they say we failed From our school days They have told us we must yearn for liberty Yet all I want in this dark place Is to have you here Oh, Grace, just hold me in your arms And let this moment linger They'll take me out at dawn And I will die With all my love I'll place this wedding ring Upon your finger 
won't be time to share our love For we must say goodbye Now I know it's hard for you, my love To ever understand The love I bear for these brave men my love for this dear land But when Parry called me to his side Down in the GPO I had to leave my homesick bed To him I had to go Oh, Grace, just hold me in your arms And let this moment linger They'll take me out of dawn And I will die With all my love I'll place this wedding ring Upon your finger won't be time to share our love For we must say goodbye Now as the dawn is breaking My heart is breaking too On this May morn as I walk out My thoughts will be of you and I'll write some words upon the wall So everyone will know I loved so much that I could see His blood upon the road Oh Grace, just hold me in your arms And let this moment They'll take me out at dawn And I will die With all my love I'll place this wedding ring Upon your finger There won't be time To share our love For we must say goodbye Oh, there won't be time to share our love So we must say goodbye The beautiful grace sung by Jim McCann there evoking the last hours spent together there with uh, Thomas Plunkett and uh, Grace Gifford. We moved further then from Kilmainham Jail and we went back into the city centre and a little bit north of the Liffey to a place called 14 Henrietta Street, which is in fact the address as well. And there we found the Tenement Museum. Yes, now Henrietta Street, of course, would have been the street back in the day. But now, of course, it's the site of the Tenement Museum. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, when Karina says back in the day, that would have been in the 1700s when some of these grand, 
uh, buildings were built around Dublin. And that was a time when Dublin was, in fact, the city, second city of the empire after London. Uh, very, very wealthy place. But the thing, of course, that happened from around about the 1840s, 50s onwards was you had the famine, mostly in the countryside of Ireland, which forced a mass exodus of people looking for work, looking for food into the city of Dublin. So you could say by the time the 1850s, 1840s, 50s came around, many of the occupants of these grand buildings were heading towards the suburbs, leaving the actual, as the infrastructure started to decline around them, and leaving these large buildings essentially to landlords who took them over, subdivided them, and made them available to the influx of families coming from the countryside, Mm. hence the Tenement Museum. I think, Karina, in this uh, next thing we're going to listen to, we have David, one of the guides, who is talking to you about the history of 14 Henrietta Street and gives us an insight into the life and times of the house itself and the people who lived in it. David, we're here at 14 Henrietta Street, and this is a very unusual building. Can you give us a little bit of the history before we take a tour around? I'd be happy to. Um, We're on Dublin's earliest Georgian Street. So although it's quite a broad street, it's a very short street, developed initially in the 1720s, and this house dates from 1748. So it's one of the last houses on this street to be built. Only 15 houses on the street, and it was developed by a man called Luke Gardner, who was a property tycoon in his day, a member of parliament and a private banker. And he lived on this street himself in the 1720s and 30s. And he wanted to have the ruling elite as neighbours. So he built it with that in mind. So this was a very classy street back in the day. This was the classiest street in Dublin during the, its heyday. Yes, absolutely. Okay. But things changed. Um, the act of union, I believe, brought change in politics and change in the scene here at this house. It did. It, it, it brought huge changes to this street, to Dublin generally, and uh, specifically this house as well. And the ruling elite all uh, vanished, really. Many moved because Parliament ceased to take place in Dublin. So they, they, they moved from Dublin off to London after 1801. Exactly, yes, yes. And what filled the vacuum was the legal profession, because during the 1800s, early 1800s, the King's Inns, which is at the end of the street, is that large cut stone building for the training of barristers was developed. So in effect, Henrietta Street becomes a legal enclave and uh, aristocrats replaced by legal professionals. And from the outside, the house is a Georgian type house. You've got the um, architrave over the, what is it, the half circular window over the door. Yes. Uh, you've got a red brick. And how many stories is the house? Uh, it's massive. I mean, the, the houses here are, are considerable in, in scale compared with other Georgian buildings. It's uh, four stories over basement with particularly high ceilings, and it's four bays wide. So, in the Georgian context, it's a much bigger house than most of the houses you might get on Merrion Square, Fitzwilliam Square, and so on. Now, the interesting thing you were saying earlier as well is that the houses, the tenement houses, because that's the next phase that the house goes into, and that's the history that we'd love to hear you chat about as well today, is that this house really wasn't a tenement house to begin. It had that grand history, aristocracy living in here, but Mm -hmm. then things changed, as opposed to maybe other tenement places. Exactly. So the original uh, family that lived here were the Molesworths, uh, Viscount uh, Richard Lord Molesworth and his wife, Lady Mary. And they were followed by a succession of tidy people, baronets and Viscounts. So for the first 50 years or so, 
It was the ruling elite of Irish society who lived on this street and, and in this house. And then, as we were saying, things begin to change with the Act of Union quite dramatically. Uh, legal professionals move in. And then it is one or two kind of curious incarnations as a courthouse post uh, famine Ireland mm -hmm. to deal with all the large indebted estates. And then it becomes, for a relatively short period, an army barracks. And that's quite a radical change of fortune for a, an aristocratic house. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that's the first instance of it be becoming a multi-family house. Yeah, the multi-family thing, that's, that was quite fascinating when you were speaking about that. So I let it over to you. So what happened next in the house? Okay, well, the Dublin militia are expelled uh, by the legal professionals uh, on the street. They petitioned to have them expelled. They're mm -hmm. successful in that respect. And that brings us to 1877, when a Dublin businessman called Thomas Vance buys number 14. He's multiple business interests. He's not really a career landlord like a lot of the others. And he systematically subdivides the house into 17 flats. And oh. it, he removes the magnificent marble fireplaces. We only know of them by description now. And he inserts a, a range and an oven in each of the fireplaces and creates 17 discrete flats. We understand that he was probably offering uh, well-meaning, decent accommodation to lower-income families at that point. And of course, there would have been a lot of lower-income families. If you're talking about the 1870s, we've passed through the famine era and exactly. quite a lot of numbers of people leaving the land and emigrating, exactly. but yeah. also coming to live in the capital city. That's it. I mean, Dublin, in terms of the population, is, is exploding to some degree because of the uh, displaced people from rural Ireland. And like I say, many obviously emigrate uh, over a million die of starvation. But Dublin begins to expand and Thomas Vance and other landlords are uh, trying to, to uh, maybe meet that need. Uh, and obviously they have profit in mind as well. And by the 1901 census, how many families are living in 14 Henrietta Street? The 1901 census tells us that there were 17 families and that there were 87 people living in this house. And uh, we know that there was just the one indoor toilet off one of the landings. And then there were two additional toilets in a, in a lean-to accessed out the back. Uh, there wasn't plumbing in any of the flats. In fact, there never was. And people either had access to a cold water tap in the basement or a cold water tap out in the backyard. And the distinctive colour along the hallways as well, you were explaining a little bit. Can you tell us a little about that red and blue? Yes. Well, they have particular names and those colours are called Reckitt's Blue and Red Radle and they're synonymous with Dublin tenements. So we find when people come on tours who have a tenement background themselves, you can see them smiling and, and recognising the names and responding to the colours. That's interesting, isn't it, that in Dublin here you get a lot of people maybe, it's not that long ago, people were living here then, you said, up until 19... Late, late 1970s, and we, we quite regularly get people on tours who have a strong tenement background themselves or who have even been born in this house. Now, we're standing in one of the tenement dwellings, which, yes. of course, is a subdivision of... So this room is towards the front of the house. Are we on the first floor? We're on the ground floor now. So we're on uh, what would have been one of the family parlours in the Georgian period, and it's accessed just out from the, uh, the main ground stairway. So let's let's go so and talk about the family maybe that lived in this house here sure. as we walk around and look yeah. at it so what a fantastic tour guide able to bring up so much and speak about it so well 
So we left 14 Henrietta Street there and we headed for a place which is probably the most extreme, uh, I suppose, kind of an itinerary queen in the sense that it's a little bit further to the north of Dublin City itself. Oh, yes. All the places we visited so far, you can get there on foot. And I think we hopped in our car then and just traveled a little bit north of the city. You're still in the city, of course, um, to Glasnevin. And Glasnevin, I think, has a soft spot in many people's hearts in Dublin because a lot of people from Dublin are buried there. Is there over a million people, I think, Mike, down through? Yeah, amazing, down down through through the centuries, really. Yeah, and of course, they're the common folk of Dublin. But as we toured around the cemetery, our eyes were caught by the famous as well who have been buried there. And the first person I spotted anyway was the grave of um, Michael Collins, which is just inside the main gates and over on the right. And that's always bedecked with flowers. He still has, um, I suppose, fans, really, is, as you'd say. And there, there are flowers there laid on that grave every year on his death. And the next one, do you remember, Mike, when we were taken into Daniel O'Connell, who was the great liberator of Ireland? Oh, down into his mausoleum. And down into his mausoleum. And there you could see the big concrete tomb. And we were all standing around that. And and my eyes were caught as well by a little antechamber off to the side where lots more, what would I say, coffins really were just piled up on top of each other to the side. It was really eerie, but again, amazing and well worth experiencing. You really felt as you walked around Glasnevin, either yourself or on a tour, that you weren't just walking around the cemetery, but you're walking around moments of history. You know, these people that we would have heard about in our history books were certainly there in front of you. And one of the things that uh, was the other place, I suppose, the number of people who especially interred in Glasnevin were a lot of the signatories of the Proclamation of Independence for Ireland in 1916. And they were laid to rest in Glasnevin as well. And one of the places we visited was the grave of Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa, who was a Fenian leader from Skibbereen, a place where we lived for a period of time, down there in West Cork. And basically what happened was, at his burial, there was a gathering of all the great and good of the revolutionaries and the revolutionaries to be of the time. So the British authorities were paying a lot of attention to who just was there and taking note But one individual came out from behind a gravestone and he basically gave an oration. And just after the oration, he vanished in behind the gravestone again, not to be caught. And that individual was Podrick Pierce, who was the chief uh, signatory of the Proclamation of Independence and later executed in Kilmainham Jail. So here we have an actor playing the part of Podrick Pierce. Mm. And as we stood in front of the graveside of Jeremiah Donovan Rossa, this actor popped out and gave us those words of Podrick Pierce from so long ago. It has seemed right. Before we turn away from this place in which we have laid the mortal remains of O'Donovan Rossan, that one amongst us should, in the name of all, speak the praise of that valiant man and endeavour to formulate the thought and the hope that are in us as we stand around his grave. And if there is anything that makes it fitting that I, rather than some other, that I, rather than one of the grey-haired men who were young with him and shared in his labour and in his suffering should speak here, it is perhaps that I may be taken as speaking on behalf of a new generation that has been rebaptized in the Fenian faith and has accepted the responsibility of carrying out the Fenian programme. I propose to you then that here by the grave of this unrepentant Fenian, 
we renew our baptismal vows that here by the grave of this unconquered and unconquerable man, we ask God, each man for himself, such unshakable purpose, such high and gallant courage, such unbreakable strength of soul as belonged to O'Donovan Rossa. Deliberately here we avow ourselves, as he avowed himself in the dock, Irishmen of one allegiance only. We of the Irish Volunteers, and you others who are associated with us in today's task and duty, are bound together and must stand together henceforth in brotherly union for the achievement of the freedom of Ireland. And we know only one definition of freedom. It is Tone's definition. It is Mitchell's definition. It is Ross's definition. Let no man blaspheme the cause that the dead generations of Ireland served by giving it any other name and definition than their name and their definition. We stand at Ross's grave not in sadness, but rather in exaltation of spirit that it has been given to us to come thus into so close a communion with that brave and splendid gale. Splendid and holy causes are served by men who are themselves splendid and holy. And O'Donovan Rossa was splendid in the proud manhood of him. Splendid in the heroic grace of him. Splendid in the Gaelic strength and clarity and truth of him. And all that splendor and pride and strength was compatible with the simplicity and humility of devotion to Ireland. The holiness and simplicity of patriotism of a Michael O'Cleary or of an Owen O'Gramley. The clear, true eyes of this man, almost alone in his day, envisioned Ireland as we of today would surely have her. Not free merely, but Gaelic as well. Not Gaelic merely, but free as well. In a closer spiritual communion with him now than ever before, or perhaps ever again. In a closer spiritual communion uh, with those of his kin, uh, those of his day, living and dead, who suffered with him in English prisons, in a spiritual communion with our own dear comrades who suffer in English prisons today, and speaking on their behalf as well as our own, we pledge to Ireland our love, and we pledge to English rule in Ireland our hate. This is a place of peace sacred to the dead, where men should speak with all charity and all restraint. But I hold it a Christian thing, as O'Donovan Rossa held it, to hate evil, to hate untruth, to hate oppression, and hating them, to strive to overthrow them. Our foes are strong and wise and wary, but strong and wise and wary as they are, they cannot undo the miracles of God who ripens in the hearts of young men the seed sown by the young men of a former generation. And the seeds sown by the young men of 65 and 67 are coming to their miraculous ripening today. Rulers and defenders of realms had need to be wary if they would guard against such processes. Life springs from death. And from the graves of patriot men and women spring living nations. The defenders of this realm have worked well in secret and in the open. They think that they have 
purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. They think that they have foreseen everything. They think that they have provided against everything. But the fools, the fools of fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. In Dublin's fair city, where the girls are so pretty, I first set my eyes on sweet Molly Malone as she wheeled her wheelbarrow through the streets broad and narrow, crying cockles and mussels, alive, alive, oh, alive, alive, oh, alive, alive, oh, crying cockles and mussels. Alive, alive, oh She was a fishmonger And sure t'was no wonder For so were her father and mother before And they wheeled their burrow Through the streets broad and narrow Crying cockles and mussels Alive, alive, oh Alive, alive, oh Alive, alive, oh Crying cockles and mussels Alive, alive, oh She died of a favour and sure no one could save her and that was the end of sweet Molly Malone now her ghost wheels her burrow through the streets broad and narrow crying cockles and mussels alive alive oh alive alive oh Alive, alive, oh, crying cockles and mussels. Alive, alive, oh, alive, alive, oh, alive, alive, oh, crying cockles and mussels. Alive, alive, oh. Okay, well, there we have the hymn to Dublin, Queen, I think, and it's Molly Malone there, sung by the Dubliners. The distinctive gravelly voice of Ronnie Drew there in the foreground. Well, the last time I was up in Dublin, Mike, there was a Molly Malone out in the street with her cart, and uh, I got my photograph taken with her. I'll have a to find one? that one. Or a statue. <laughs> a real one. Ah, okay. And she looked like the real thing as well. Oh, very interesting. Very, ah, that's a nice one, isn't it? And just before that, we actually finished up with our final stop on our tour of Dublin. 
which was Glasnevin Cemetery there, number five, and the oration of Podrick Pierce there at the graveside of Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa. I got quite a shock that day when he popped out and in the full regalia of the Irish Citizen Army, I think uniform he was wearing, yeah. I remember a green uniform. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening here? And uh, Are we all expected to do a piece? Yeah, so it was so realistic, I think. that That's my point, really. Really, very realistic and up over there in Glasnevin Cemetery. So, Mike, I think that's it. We've come to the end of our show today, our five stops on our tour of Dublin. And do let your comments and let us know maybe what your ideal tour of Dublin would be. Oh, we'd love to see an alternative, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you may have visited some places um, off the beaten track that you'd like to talk about, and we'd love to hear those. And for people that are, I know, planning to get back here sometime soon, maybe next year, uh, it would be lovely to see your ideas and to share them with other listeners. So do let us know. And I hope you've enjoyed Mike's selection of music again. And you might have a favourite there too, or one that you'd like to add that reminds you of Dublin or a trip that you've had here over in Dublin. Or at some Dublin stage. or Bala or Clea. Very good, Mike. Thanks, well, well remembered. So Dublin, the Blackpool, or Bala or Clea. And of course, when you're in Dublin, you'll be among the dubs. So that's it for today, folks. Hope you enjoyed the programme. Do leave your comments, as Karina says, and slán for now. Slán gafol, everybody. And thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we'd like to invite you to check out our special membership area, The Green Room. You hear us mention it a lot during the show. And you can find full details of The Green Room at letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Our Green Room is the essential resource for anybody at any stage in researching their Irish heritage. Because it's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and really connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. In the green room, you get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a very supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anybody starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So why don't you come and join us there at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. That's it for me, but I'll be back next time with another installment of the Letter from Ireland show. And I really look forward to chatting to you then. Slán gafól, Karina. <laughs>